Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric resident here at the Medical College of Georgia, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm excited that we are joined again by Dr. Dan McCollum, an emergency physician, and Dr. Chris Watson, a pediatric intensivist here at MCG. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure as always, Zach. Hi, Zach. It's great to be back here again today. On this episode, we will discuss the management of pediatric traumatic brain injury, which we will refer to as TBI. Let's get started with the case. An eight-year-old male is brought to the emergency department at a small regional hospital after an ATV accident. He was not wearing his helmet. EMS reports that he was initially alert at the scene, but has developed worsening mental status en route. They state he has abrasions on his forehead, but there are no other obvious signs of trauma. He is currently receiving oxygen by a non-rebreathing face mask and a cervical collar is in place. Dan, how would you start your initial evaluation of this patient? Blunt trauma in children usually results in multi-system injury. You have to assume that there are multiple injuries and approach the patient in a systematic way. Start with the primary survey before moving on to a more detailed physical exam. Remember A, B, C, D, E, which stands for airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. In patients with traumatic brain injury, the Glasgow Coma Scale, or GCS, can help estimate the level of severity of brain injury. A GCS of 8 or less suggests severe brain injury. Remember that the score is based on what the patient is doing in terms of opening their eyes, responding by voice, and movement. 15 is the highest score, 3 is the lowest. In any case of severe traumatic brain injury, I want to quickly identify and treat any cause of ongoing or secondary brain injury. My first priority is to address any possible ongoing hemorrhage, secure the airway, ensure adequate ventilation, and address possible hypovolemia. We need to insert two large bore IV lines or an intraosseous line if IV access is difficult for volume resuscitation and medications. This is very common in children. If the age and weight are not known, then a length-based resuscitation tape can be used to quickly estimate drug dosing and proper equipment size. I agree with Dan. Hypoxemia and hypercapnia cannot be tolerated as they both increase cerebral blood flow and increase intracranial pressure. Securing the airway early and ensuring appropriate oxygenation and ventilation is the first priority here. Now, anatomically, we need to remember that children have small bodies with relatively larger heads, which places them at increased risk of head and neck injury. In addition, given their smaller total blood volumes, though proportionally greater by weight, seemingly small to moderate extracranial or intracranial hemorrhage may actually be clinically significant. In the setting of severe TBI, we need to be aware that direct parenchymal and vascular disruption activates a complex cascade of events that may actually lead to significant secondary brain injury. So overall, our treatment goals are going to be oriented towards preventing secondary injury as the primary insult has already occurred. We achieve this by avoiding and treating hypotension, hypoxemia, fever, ischemia, and refractory intracranial hypertension, which are all associated with higher morbidity and mortality. Since the normal cerebral blood flow autoregulation is often disrupted in severe TBI, hypotension or refractory intracranial hypertension from swelling or mass effect may compromise cerebral perfusion more rapidly than normal. This means we need to quickly identify any hypotension and rapidly restore circulatory blood volume in the initial minutes to hours after presentation. So which pediatric head trauma patient should we intubate early? There are several indications for intubation in these patients. One is if the child cannot maintain their own airway. Another is signs of respiratory failure, like hypoxia, hypercapnia, or an increased CO2 detected, or hypoventilation. Depressed sensorium, including an initial GCS less than or equal to 8, is a good rough guideline, but I'm flexible. You have to assess the patient in totality and not just rely on a single number. 
Finally, if the patient needs transfer to a higher level of care, securing the airway prior to transport may be the safest choice for some of our patients. This is really, really common in the community, as you may not have a PICU attached to your hospital. You're going to want to get these patients to the highest level of care that you can, and that might mean intubating someone so that they don't decompensate during a long transit. Assigning the correct GCS for TBI patients is very important, as it directs much of our early airway management. There are some key differences to understand when calculating the GCS in children. Chris, will you tell us what we need to know about the pediatric GCS? The GCS can easily and be rapidly done as part of a mini neuroassessment in the trauma patient and falls under the D or disability portion of our primary survey. The pediatric GCS is similar to the adult scale ranging from 3 to 15, as Dan mentioned, and is determined by including the best eye, verbal, and motor responses. An easy mnemonic to remember this for me has always been EVM456. So the best score for eye response is 4, for verbal is 5, and for motor is 6. EVM456. Since some children cannot talk, the verbal score is modified to be consistent with the patient's verbal and motor development, though these alterations have not been validated. Overall, the most accurate prognostic indicator for TBI patients is their best motor response. Remember that we also need to consider other causes of altered mental status or encephalopathy when evaluating a patient with TBI. These patients could be postictal from a seizure or have ingested drugs or alcohol, which may also affect their neuro exam. Another handy mnemonic that you can use to memorize the GCS is to remember four eyes, the Jackson 5, and a V6 motor. This stands for the eyes being four, the common insult of calling someone that wears glasses being four eyes, the Jackson 5, to think of Michael Jackson's voice, and a V6 motor, showing that there are six points for the motor scale. I strongly encourage you to look these up, particularly for children, as it's a little bit different than the adult scale. Now back to our case. On arrival, our patient was noted to have an abnormal breathing pattern and oxygen saturation of 94% on a non-rebreathing face mask. There is no active hemorrhage. Blood pressure is 95 over 70, and there are normal pulses and capillary refill time. GCS is notable for no spontaneous eye opening, incomprehensible speech, and withdrawing to pain for a total score of 7. You decide he requires intubation to maintain his airway. How would you prepare to intubate this child? If the child is spontaneously breathing and not hypoxemic, you should have time to optimize your airway attempt for first-pass success. Remember, we absolutely cannot tolerate even brief hypoxia in these patients. Use a jaw thrust maneuver with stabilization of the cervical spine to open a partially obstructed airway and clear the oropharynx of any debris. This is particularly important in children whose large floppy tongues may be getting in the way. It's very helpful to have another provider hold cervical spine immobilization with the front of the cervical collar removed. This allows for better jaw opening. It's very difficult to intubate using laryngoscope if the front of the C-collar is still in place. Administer supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula or face mask to pre-oxygenate the child prior to intubation. Remember that children desat very quickly. If the child were to become apneic or hypoxemic despite the previous interventions, they may require bag valve mask ventilation or an oral airway until an orotracheal airway is secured. As Dan mentioned, orotracheal intubation with restriction of cervical spine motion is the preferred definitive airway for these patients. When you select your equipment, remember that there are a few key differences with the pediatric airway as compared to adults. Children have large tongues and tonsils. The larynx is more anterior compared to adults and funnel-shaped, making laryngoscopy and tube placement slightly more difficult. If the age of the patient is unknown, using the Braslow tape, as mentioned earlier, can be helpful to estimate the appropriate endotracheal tube and laryngoscope size. Younger children will typically require a straight Miller blade, but for an 8-year-old, a curved Mac blade will be fine. 
It's also important to ask for your sedatives and paralytics early so that they will be available when the patient is optimized for intubation. While more commonly used in adult populations, the use of video laryngoscopy devices may be helpful if you're unable to properly visualize the cords while maintaining cervical spine immobilization. As a learner, there seems there are so many different medications we can use for sedation and analgesia and paralysis. How do you choose which medications to use for intubation? Most commonly, we use rapid sequence intubation for these patients. In order to accomplish that, we're going to need both a sedative as well as a paralytic. We have two main choices for sedatives, atomidate and ketamine. And we have two main choices for paralytic, succinylcholine and rocuronium. I commonly use atomidate for sedation and succinylcholine is my paralytic. Here's why. Atomidate is the traditional agent used for these head injury patients, as ketamine was previously believed to be contraindicated in head injured patients. Ketamine is likely safe in head injured patients, but it does increase intracranial pressure. This is why it was initially believed not to be useful in this group. However, ketamine is likely neuroprotective, and the increased total blood pressure may actually compensate for this increased intracranial pressure. All that being said, I like to keep it simple, and I generally use Atomidate if my patient has a normal blood pressure when I'm trying to intubate. I still will reserve ketamine as my go-to agent if the patient is hypotensive. What about our paralytic? I generally use succinylcholine because it wears off quicker. Succinylcholine will commonly be gone in 10 to 15 minutes, while rocuronium, an excellent paralytic, will often have the patient have an unreliable neurologic exam for an hour or more. This is unfortunately very difficult to know how to manage your patient while they're paralyzed. I only use rocuronium or other agents similar to that if there's a clear contraindication to succinylcholine, which I would encourage you to review, particularly in children. We need to be careful that our choice does not lead to hypotension or increased intracranial pressure for our patients with traumatic brain injury, remembering that hypotension is one of the big killers of these patients. It's also important to document a brief neurologic exam, including GCS, pupillary light response, and focal abnormalities before giving any sedatives or paralytics. Don't rush these exams in a hurry to intubate, as they can be critical for the initial resuscitation after you intubate. The key point that Dan is highlighting here is that in the pediatric patient with severe TBI, a cerebroprotective rapid sequence induction strategy is key. We have to remember that tracheal intubation, though a life-saving intervention, is a profoundly noxious stimulus. The sequence of events begins with preparation and preoxygenation, then proceeds to sedation, neuromuscular blockade, and then intubation. I agree that atomidate is traditionally used for intubating pediatric patients with TBI because of its hemodynamically neutral side effect profile. Other possibilities might include fentanyl plus neuromuscular blockade if hypotensive, or fentanyl plus midazolam and neuromuscular blockade. Though the evidence is mixed, we could also consider using lidocaine not as an antiarrhythmic, but as a systemic adjunct to decrease sympathetic stimulation. Finally, the 2019 pediatric TBI guidelines were unable to make any definitive recommendations either for or against the use of ketamine. So for our patient, after pre-oxygenation, he was intubated with a 6-0 endotracheal tube and a Miller II blade. Tube placement was confirmed by auscultation and colorimetric entitled CO2 detector. Now after airway, breathing, or secured, what is your next step? While maintaining the patient's airway and breathing, we're also assessing his circulatory status. Signs of circulatory compromise include tachycardia, weak pulses, poor perfusion, and hypotension. If any are present, then I start with an isotonic IV fluid bolus and call for blood products if there is concern for hemorrhage or if poor perfusion persists after initial fluid resuscitation. My fluid of choice for any trauma patient is blood products. They didn't lose salt water at the side of the road, they lost blood. Minimize the amount of saline you're using to resuscitate your patient, understanding that you might have to use some crystalloid while the blood products are coming. 
Start with packed red blood cells and add fresh frozen plasma or FFP and platelets if a large amount of blood products are needed. The ideal amount of salt water to give your patient is zero, but sometimes saline is needed while awaiting those blood products. Remember that hypotension is a late finding in pediatric shock. As compared to adults, children have increased physiologic reserve to maintain blood pressure. Initially, tachycardia and poor perfusion may be the only clinical signs present of early compensated shock. If hypotension develops, then the child has entered decompensated shock and may have lost 40 to 50% of their circulating blood volume. There is evidence that early blood products are helpful in pediatric trauma patients. As Dan has mentioned, this typically involves giving 20 mLs per kilo initially of an IV fluid bolus, but then rapidly transitioning to blood products, packed red blood cells, platelets, and fresh frozen plasma in accordance with a balanced ratio, particularly if on a massive transfusion protocol. Once hemorrhage is excluded, then perhaps moving towards a resuscitation with normal saline with isolated traumatic brain injury may be the preferred resuscitation. Our patient received one IV fluid bolus prior to intubation and is normotensive with appropriate perfusion. Focus neuro exam is notable for equal pupils that are responsive to light. Dan, how would you finish up the primary survey? Be sure to completely expose the patient to ensure there are no other deformities, then cover with warm blankets. After completing the primary survey, it's time to move on to the secondary survey. This includes a complete head-to-toe physical exam and focus history, including allergies, medications, past medical history, last meal, and any events leading up to presentation. You might have to rely on family or pre-hospital personnel to acquire this information. Look closely for other signs of head trauma, including open or depressed skull fractures, hemotympanum, or blood in the middle ear, Focal ecchymoses, including raccoon eyes or battle sign, which is bruising posterior or inferior to the ear. CSF otorrhea or rhinorrhea, that patient probably doesn't have a runny nose right after their head injury. Evaluate for other signs, including trauma to the spine, thorax, abdomen, and extremities. It's important to know the exact mechanism of injury, as high-energy mechanisms such as MVC or pedestrians struck by vehicle suggest much higher risk for other injuries. Next, since I'm at a regional hospital without neurosurgery coverage, I want to get on the phone early to get this patient transferred to a facility capable of definitive care. Children with severe TBI in an outlying hospital should be transferred to a pediatric trauma center for neurosurgery evaluation as soon as they are stabilized. Ideally, if the patient is stable, transfer should not be delayed by neuroimaging. This patient needs to be closely assessed for signs of intracranial pressure continuously. So let's do a quick recap of our initial resuscitation of the head injured patient. We're going to focus on the A, B, C, D, and E of the initial primary survey. We're going to take the airway early, especially if the patient has a low GCS, making certain not to have any hypoxia. We're going to ventilate aggressively to maintain breathing to avoid any hypercapnia, which can be very dangerous in these patients. We're going to make sure that the patient's volume is appropriate, transfusing blood and giving crystalloid as needed to make sure the blood pressure is good. Remember that hypotension is a very late finding in these patients, so don't rely on that to show evidence of hemorrhagic shock. Next up, we're going to be doing a look at disability, making sure that we do as thorough of a neurologic exam as possible, and calculating a good Glasgow coma score. And last, exposure, so that we're able to do a a proper secondary survey, looking for any signs of other trauma or signs of bleeding. Now let's discuss some more focused care, specifically targeting at the traumatic brain injury itself. What are the first-line interventions that we need to do for all severe TBI patients while waiting on the transfer team or neurosurgery evaluation? In patients at high risk of increased intracranial pressure, there are several key things to keep in mind. Place the patient's head in a neutral position, elevating the head of bed to 30 degrees, and check for proper fitting of a cervical collar to help venous drainage. A cervical collar that is too tight or a head tilted to the side might decrease venous drainage that will be essential to prevent increased intracranial pressure. 
Give appropriate analgesia and sedation. If the patient is in pain or fighting the ventilator, this may cause spikes and increase intracranial pressure. If you have a blood gas, maintain a PaCO2 at about 35 millimeters of mercury. Hypercapnia should be avoided because it dilates cerebral arteries, which increases cerebral blood flow and therefore increases intracranial pressure. Ensure appropriate volume status and provide fluids and blood if needed. We also need to start thinking about seizure prophylaxis. This is where I think the new 2019 guidelines that I alluded to earlier can help us out by outlining the components of our baseline or first-line therapies for the treatment of pediatric TBI. As we mentioned earlier, one of our primary treatment goals is to maintain normal blood pressure and prevent worsening intracranial hypertension. In addition to everything Dan mentioned, we need to maintain normothermia. Due to their larger BSA, or body surface area, to mass index ratio, children are prone to hypothermia. However, evidence suggests using prophylactic moderate hypothermia only as a second-tier level 2 therapy for refractory intracranial pressures, not as a first-line treatment. Additionally, we do know that hyperthermia is extremely harmful and expedites neuronal cell death, so sometimes this requires aggressive cooling measures just to maintain normothermia. Coagulopathy is common in the trauma patient, and severe abnormalities should be corrected as well. Our goal hemoglobin is greater than 7 initially if the patient is stable. For seizure prophylaxis, phosphenitoin or levetiracetam are recommended. Seizures can be found in up to 70% of pediatric TBI cases, and it can be difficult to diagnose, especially if the patient is sedated or receiving neuromuscular blockade. There's no clear evidence that one medication is superior to the other. Remember to maintain normal glycemia with dextrose-containing IV fluids if necessary, as these patients will be NPO initially. Even one isolated episode of hypoglycemia can be detrimental. Finally, I agree as well with targeting a PaCO2 of 35, but keep in mind that further hyperventilation and hypocapnia cause cerebral vasoconstriction and may worsen cerebral ischemia. What do you use to guide your management until the patient is transferred? In rural emergency departments, we don't have the luxury of having an ICP monitor or intracranial pressure monitor, so we'll have to use frequent exams to guide our treatment. Our severe traumatic brain injury patients need frequent reassessment for clinical signs of brain herniation syndromes. These can be very subtle. Remember these are pupil dilation, hypertension, bradycardia, and extensor posturing. These require immediate intervention to reverse ongoing herniation. If you suspect possible herniation, what's your next step? The 2019 Pediatric TBI Guidelines have provided a series of recommendations to address herniation syndromes. So we can first increase the FiO2 to 100% to increase oxygen delivery. We can titrate hyperventilation to reverse pupillary dilation. Hyperventilation results in hypocapnia that causes cerebral vasoconstriction and reduces ICP. This can only be used for a short time because prolonged use will lead to cerebral ischemia. Bolus hypertonic therapy, either mannitol or hypertonic saline, may also be used. And then we want to think about obtaining an emergent CT and obtaining neurosurgical consultation if available. Even with surgical intervention, these patients often do not do well. You mentioned hypertonic therapy. Do you prefer hypertonic saline or mannitol for increased ICP? Ah, oh, the age-old debate that will never die. The use of hypertonic saline has more evidence in children, but choice of hyperosmolar therapy will typically be guided by your institutional practice and neurosurgical consultant. 3% saline can be given as boluses of 2 to 5 milliliters per kilogram, up to a max dose of 250 milliliters. This can be given over 10 to 20 minutes and repeated if needed. There's also now a level 3 recommendation for use of 23.4% hypertonic saline for refractory intracranial pressure at 0.5 milliliters per kilogram up to 30 mLs. Do not attempt to memorize these numbers, but look them up as pediatric head injuries are not common enough for you to be confident in this. Hypertonic saline can reduce intracranial pressure by reducing blood viscosity. 
It also has an osmotic effect that causes the gradual movement of water from the brain parenchyma into the systemic circulation. Mannitol, with a dose of 0.5 to 1 grams per kilogram, may also be used as an alternative to hypertonic saline. In addition to reducing blood viscosity, mannitol is an osmotic diuretic and may paradoxically result in hypotension. Clinical effects start at about 15 to 30 minutes and may last up to 6 hours. There's very little evidence of this in pediatric patients. What pitfalls do we need to be aware of when using hyperosmolar therapy? Both hypertonic saline and mannitol have safety considerations to keep in mind. Prolonged hypernatremia can increase the risk for thrombocytopenia, anemia, and the risk of deep vein thrombosis. Mannitol can increase the risk of acute tubular necrosis and renal failure. Thus, with either of these, routine electrolyte surveillance and monitoring of clinical fluid status to include hourly urine output with a Foley catheter is suggested. Coming back to our case, our patient was provided 5 mLs per kilo of 3% saline and stabilized prior to transfer to the nearby trauma center. CT scan of the head without contrast is notable for a left-sided subdural hematoma with concern for midline shift. Chris, what is your next step in the management of this patient? First, we need to work with neurosurgery to decide if a procedure is indicated. Even a normal CT does not exclude increased intracranial pressure in a comatose patient. At a minimum, the 2019 guidelines recommend inserting an ICP monitor for any patient with a GCS of 8 or less due to severe TBI. Remember that since the skull is a confined space, based on the Monroe-Kelly doctrine, any brain swelling or an expanding lesion within the skull will increase ICP that can be detected on a monitor before there are any signs of herniation. What ICP do you target and how do you treat intracranial hypertension in the ICU? In pediatric patients, sustained intracranial pressure greater than 20 for 5 minutes or longer should be treated. Treatment of intracranial hypertension is multifaceted and builds on all the strategies we've already outlined thus far. If neurosurgery placed a ventriculostomy, then start by draining CSF. If I'm still struggling to control ICP, then I may try additional hypertonic saline or analgesia and sedation. Next, we can try neuromuscular blockade, but otherwise we may have to move to second-tier therapies. When managing increased ICP, we have to be careful that we're maintaining an appropriate cerebral perfusion pressure. And remind us, what exactly is cerebral perfusion pressure? So cerebral perfusion pressure, or CPP, is the mean arterial pressure, or MAP, minus the ICP. CPP can be improved by increasing the mean arterial pressure or by decreasing ICP. Hypertonic saline is commonly used to help with both of these factors. CPP goal is age-based and is between 40 to 50 with older patients requiring slightly higher pressures. Mean arterial pressure can also be supported by optimizing volume status and using vasopressors as needed. What sedative analgesics do you prefer to help with raised ICP? So there's no evidence that one analgesic or sedative is superior to all others. Narcotics, benzodiazepines, or small doses of barbiturates are all generally recommended for routine use. Continuous infusions are typically preferred to repeated boluses. Specifically, though, avoiding repeated boluses of fentanyl and midazolam for treatment of ICP spikes should be avoided, though, as it's associated with worse outcomes, and alternative treatments such as hypertonic saline may be more beneficial for ICP if sedation is adequate. Finally, prolonged use of propofol in the pediatric patient is contraindicated. So let's summarize the interventions that we've done. We've made sure that we maximize cerebral perfusion by either increasing the mean arterial pressure, remembering that we gave some isotonic fluids or blood earlier if needed. We could also consider the use of vasopressors if absolutely required. We've also avoided anything that increases the intracranial pressure. So we avoid anything such as having the head of bed low or doing anything that decreases venous outflow. We've also used hypertonic saline or mannitol if the patient has signs of herniation, and we've made certain to avoid any issues with hypercapnia or hypoxia. It is also essential that we maximize analgesia. So Dr. Watson, what's your next step if your intracranial pressure is refractory to any of those interventions we just mentioned? 
So if we're struggling with refractory ICP, we first need to make sure that we're not missing an expanding lesion. A repeat head CT and repeated neurosurgical evaluation are necessary. Indications for a repeat scan may include persistent or increased ICP despite appropriate treatment, focal or new neurological signs, or concern for worsening intracranial pathology but unable to assess the neurological exam due to sedation or paralysis. These patients require close monitoring. In consultation with neurology, we may start a continuous EEG to make sure that we're not missing any subclinical seizures. If there's no indication for surgery, then we may move on to second-tier therapies. As many of the second-tier therapies come into play beyond the initial management, let's just hit some of the highlights here. There are several other interventions, but all have significant risks. The first thing is safely maximize hypertonic therapy. Next, we want to use a combination of moderate hypothermia, hyperventilation, and a barbiturate infusion. But if these fail, then all we may have left is decompressive craniectomy. But there's limited evidence that this is beneficial with wide variability in practice. Thanks. That's a great overview of how we manage increased ICP in the PICU. As we begin to wrap up, Dan, do you have anything else you wanted to mention? Thanks, Zach. I want to emphasize that these patients can be complex and may decompensate quickly. This is not a one-time evaluation and then not go back into the room type of patient. Remember to systematically work through your primary and secondary surveys to look for other signs of injuries. Early intubation may be needed for severe traumatic brain injury to ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation. This is particularly important if you're having to transfer the patient out. Hypotension cannot be tolerated. Use saline or even better, early blood products if there's concern for hemorrhage and hypovolemia. Do not rely on hypotension in pediatric patients as that's a late finding. Get trauma and neurosurgery involved early. Patients evaluated in regional hospitals should be stabilized and transferred to a trauma center as soon as possible. Above all, these patients require frequent reassessment for signs of brainstem herniation and aggressive management of progressive neurologic deficits develop. Keep the head of the bed up, the head straight, a C-collar that's not too restrictive, and consider the use of hypertonic saline if the patient shows evidence of deterioration. With that, I'd like to thank Dr. Watson and Dr. Hodges for helping us out with the management of these tough patients. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dan. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Dan. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, remember this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.